Matthew 5 in your Bibles this morning. Think back to a time uh, in my life. I'll describe what the scenario was like. My head was absolutely throbbing. Every one of those headaches where you're feeling it pulse. All my muscles were aching, and my feet felt like lead. And no, I wasn't sick. I wasn't down with the flu or down with some kind of virus going around. No, rather, I was actually doing something very athletic. I was determined to make it to the top of Humphreys Peak in Flagstaff, Arizona, 12,500 feet. Problem is, as I had just come back from being at sea level, and I wasn't at all acclimated to the altitude, so every step was just felt like there were rocks on your shoe, dealing with altitude sickness. But by that point, I'd gone too far to turn back. You, you ever get stuck into something so far where you're like, okay, this stinks, but I've already invested three hours into it, and there's only 45 minutes left to the top of the mountain. I better make it to the end. But finally made it to the top of Humphreys Peak in Flagstaff, the highest point in Arizona. And let me tell you, absolutely worth it. If you've ever been to the summit of a mountain, uh, we don't have any of those around here to explain to all of us who live here in Pancake Land. They're sort of where you have higher points of ground that you can get up and you can see things from them, and there's elevation change, that sort of thing, if you can imagine it. But from the top of Humphreys Peak, it's the highest point in Arizona. You can look to the north. About 100 miles to the north, you can see the Grand Canyon. If you look to the south, you can see the red rocks of Sedona. Looking east and west, you can see Ponderosa Pine Forest stretching as far as the eye can see out to the, the Bill Williams Mountain towards the west and going out towards the Mogollon Rim to the east. From up there, you feel like you're on the top of the world. You, you can look back over the trail that you just climbed up and see, ah, oh, that's where we were. There's where those switchbacks were. There's where we saw, there's the parking lot way down there. There's the, the ski lift. Should have taken that. That would have been a better way to hike. As you look from the top, you see, the view from the top, the view from the, the top of the mountain gives you perspective, helps you understand the lay of the land. It's like when you're, you're getting the bird's eye view from Google Earth, you can see, oh, there's where my house is in relation to Walmart, even though the road may kind of zigzag a little bit. Well, today as we begin a new series, we're starting a new series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, three chapters, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, this message that Jesus delivered perhaps on multiple occasions. Uh, perhaps Matthew is, is, is taking portions of things Jesus said on, uh, on different points. This incredible summation and declaration of the, the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that gives to us real Christianity. But the thing about the Sermon on the Mount, if you read it all the way through, you begin to realize it is intricately structured. Matthew is not just slapping together things like, oh, I heard Jesus say this one time, and I heard him say this another time, and let me put these things together. It's not just Jesus getting up, stream of consciousness, talking about whatever comes into his mind. This is a sermon that has intricate structure, a sermon that you can really only understand the parts if you understand the whole. It's a sermon that only makes sense when you're like, okay, I've got to see the big picture. Ever make a puzzle before? Um, I, I hate puzzles. I'm just kind of like, I can see the picture on the box. Why would I spend hours trying to cram little pieces together? But imagine how difficult it would be to make a puzzle if you didn't know what, what, what the puzzle was of. You're like, hey, here's blue. Do I know? Is it ocean? Is it sky? Is it a blue house? What am I looking at? 
You, you look at the box, the, the, the cover of the box to see where each piece goes. What we want to do today is go to the top of the mountain and see the lay of the land. What we want to do today is sort of look at Google Earth and get the big picture. We want to look at the picture on the box to see what's the Sermon on the Mount about in the main, in the big picture. And only then can we come in and begin to go verse by verse through this, which we will do in detail in understanding this message from Jesus. Let's just begin reading some verses here, beginning in Matthew 5. Actually, let's back up to Matthew 4 in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, what's the gospel of the kingdom? Earlier he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The, the king is here. You need to turn from your sin and trust him. And healing all manner of sickness, all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers or various diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils and those that were lunatic and those that had the palsy. And he healed them. So his ministry, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee. Okay, that's, his, that's where he's from. From Decapolis, that's on the other side of the river. From Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. So he's got this huge multitude of people who are following him. Now, what does he do? And seeing the multitudes, these huge gatherings of people. He went up into a mountain. Okay, that might seem like an odd thing to do. There's huge crowds of people. Maybe you're thinking, let's organize everybody. Let's get everybody together. Instead, he does something difficult. He goes up a mountain, uh, takes some dedication to follow him up the mountain. And when he was set, okay, the idea is when he was seated, he's assuming the posture of a rabbi. In our culture today, those who teach stand up. I'm standing up right now. We, we understand in our culture Teaching from standing position, preaching from a standing position conveys a level of authority. In Jesus' day, it was the opposite. The, the teachers would sit to teach. So when he was seated as a rabbi, as a teacher, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And what follows here is the greatest sermon ever preached. Now it says he teaches, teaching, preaching, or overlapping concepts in the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now go to the end of the sermon, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. So he preaches this sermon, he comes to his, the end of his sermon to his conclusion, and he makes this statement, Matthew seven twenty-four. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I'll liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, okay, there's two kinds of people people who hear this and live it, and people who hear this and ignore it. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. So, notice the sermon begins with he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and when he had finished these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. He taught them the word doctrine, the word teaching, same word in the Greek. For he taught them as one having authority and not as a scribe. So he might be sitting like one of the scribes, one of the rabbis, but his message was nothing like theirs. There is great authority here that blew them away. Yes, he's saying some things they maybe heard before, but he's saying things with authority that they're like, we've never heard anyone teach like this. 
And when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So notice how there's symmetry here. There's multitudes following him. He goes up the mountain. He teaches the sermon. And then when it's done, he comes down from the mountain, and the multitudes continue following him. But Matthew 5, verse 1, notice who he is primarily addressing. He opened his, uh, notice who came up to the mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. So there's a huge crowd of people who are hearing him, but primarily he's addressing his followers, his disciples, those who have put their faith in him. And we need to hear the sermon sort of through the ears of both. There's something he's saying to the crowds. There's something he's saying to the disciples from this sermon. We're calling this series Real Christianity. He's saying to the disciples, this is what it looks like to live like one of my followers. This is what real, okay, the term Christianity hadn't come come about yet, but here's what real Christianity looks like. Here's what real religion looks like. Not the fake stuff that you see from the scribes and Pharisees. I believe in our day, what is most desperately needed in the year 2024 in the United States of America is real Christianity, is for those who name the name of Jesus to have real, genuine, authentic, New Testament Christianity. What is needed is not an awesome election year. It's really not going to make a big difference. What is needed is not glitzier marketing for the, 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 for the church. What is needed is not cooler worship styles from the the stages of of gatherings. What is needed is genuine Christianity. Now, the demands of the sermon, I'm going to warn you, the demands of the sermon are absolutely staggering. If you read the Sermon on the Mountain, you're like, got it, I'll do it. You're You're misunderstanding it. If you read the Sermon on the Mountain, you're like, you know what? This here is a, you know, let's, let's put this into legislation and set this up as the legislation to have a, a, a better society and bring in social justice. You're misunderstanding the sermon. That's not what it's here for. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 20. So any good sermon has a main point, has a big idea, has a thesis statement, has a, a, a proposition. Here it is. Matthew 5 and verse 24, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, okay, the religious professionals who had lengthy rules and regulations who everyone would have regarded as they're the religious pros. It says, your righteousness has got to exceed that. Notice this. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Saying, entering into the kingdom of heaven, being saved, requires you to have a righteousness that is unlike any righteousness that any human being possesses. So we're not just talking about, yeah, do it like the scribes and Pharisees and be a nice person. We're talking about a standard that is staggeringly high. Something that's far more than what the scribes and Pharisees have. Look at how he puts it in verse 48. Summarizing this first point of the sermon, if you will. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that word perfect might throw us a little bit, because well, nobody is, so we'll just, this, is, this is just hypothetical. Uh, the, the, the word that is translating is the idea of complete, of whole, of mature. This wholeness, this completeness, where, where you have a righteousness that's not just a show on the outside, but is also inside. 
where inside and outside come together, where piety and daily life are consistent. So we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about wholeness and maturity. He's saying that's what you aspire to as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This theme of righteousness comes back up. Again, look in Matthew 6, verse 33. So we, we saw that in, in Matthew 5, you've got to have a, a righteousness to enter the kingdom. Righteousness kingdom, these two themes kind of going together. Look at verse 33. But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The pursuit of the disciple, the ambition of the genuine Christian, the highest value of real Christianity is God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And then sort of coming to the end of the, the body of the sermon in, in, in Matthew 7, verse 12. Here's, here's what this looks like in our relationships. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would, you desire that men should do to you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. The ethic that is presented here is unlike anything else. It's unlike what the, the scribes and Pharisees offered. It's unlike anything that the Roman philosophers were offering. It goes far beyond Aristotle and Plato and all of the other ethical systems of Jesus' day. That's why everyone heard this and their jaw hit the sand. This is a radically countercultural way of being in the world, a radically countercultural way of as living as the people of God. John tells us, love not the world. They're rightly concerned about worldliness uh, within the church. This is a sermon that is calling us, the Sermon on the Mount, calling us to, here's how you live in the world that, is, that goes against the grain of the way our world does things. Now, in giving us real Christianity, it's going to demolish some counterfeit Christianities. There's a lot of things sort of presenting themselves in our world today as genuine Christianity. Now, I don't have this on the outline or on the PowerPoint, but you might want to jot these down. I want to just quickly give you some things that could look like Christianity but are not Christianity that the Sermon on the Mount will take a sledgehammer to. The first one is cultural Christianity. Now, here's what cultural Christianity is, and we see it a little bit more here in this part of the country where we live, where there's higher rates of church attendance, and it's more likely than in other parts of the country that you are taken to church as a kid, that you, you kind of understand some basics of Christianity. Cultural Christianity reduces Christianity to a, to a few sort of shared cultural values and practice. Well, you know, my grandma took me to church, so I know it's a good thing. And yeah, I sort of believe in Jesus. He was a nice guy. And, you know, we should be respectful to parents and should be conservative in our, in our politics and we should be ethical in our morals. We should believe marriage is between a man and a woman. And those are all good things. Okay, Christianity is not less than those things. But it is much, much more. The Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, demolishes this cultural Christianity by saying Christianity is much more than just sort of living in a Christian culture. It is having Christ-like character. You don't do Christianity just because everyone else in your orbit does. The second counterfeit Christianity the Sermon on the Mount will demolish is legalistic Christianity. That sort of is epitomized in the way the scribes and Pharisees did things. So they could make God's law keepable. They came up with all of these lists of, hey, do these ten things and you can check the box. And it was all about externals. Everything needs to be measured and we, we need to be able to say, well, I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't commit adultery today. 
um, you know, yeah, I'm, I, I divorced my spouse, but at least I went through the legal procedure to do it. Um, I might have told lies, but I, I technically swore oaths that, that, that gave me an out, and I, I found the loopholes in the contract. That was what their righteousness was. It was very much about rules, regulations, lists, bullet points. And the whole point of it, while making it look like the standard was very high, was actually making the standard very keepable. So legalism, a, a way of living Christianity that's just about rules, that's just about sort of a, here are a set of sort of litmus tests. If you keep these, you're good. If you don't, you're not. The third counterfeit is ritualistic Christianity. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't do your righteousness, Matthew 6, verse 1, before men to be seen of them. He says, don't just put, make it your, your, your piety, your religious practice. He'll talk about praying, and he'll talk about fasting. He will talk about giving. This is this kind of Christianity that says, go to church. When the song leader says, stand up, you stand up. You sing the words, but your heart is not in it. It's going through the motions on the outside. It's kneeling. It's standing. It's, it's praying sort of standard rote things but there's no relationship or heart in it. So we've got cultural Christianity, legalistic Christianity, ritualistic Christianity. The fourth and fifth go together. There's materialistic Christianity that says, you can have God and a relationship with him in the kingdom of God and also have a lot of money and stuff and be about all of the values that this world is. Jesus will say, you cannot serve God and mammon, famously in Matthew 6, lay up treasures in heaven. This idea, this worldly Christianity that has the same values as the world around us that says the point of life is to get as much as you can is one of these views of religion that Jesus says is incompatible with real Christianity. Or the other side of the coin is a Christianity that divides itself up and says, well, Christianity is just about sort of praying and reading your Bible, but God doesn't really care about what I do with my money or my stuff or my anxiety or my relationships. It compartmentalizes it. Okay, so we have cultural Christianity, legalistic Christianity, ritualistic Christianity, materialistic Christianity, and finally, nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity is this idea that you can just go through a catechism class and be confirmed in your faith, or just recite a prayer that somebody read to you without really understanding the gospel, and you're in. You'll check a box. You can say, Lord, Lord. You can say, I agree to a doctrinal statement. You can say, I, I can go, aha, uh-huh, to a few points on the back of a postcard. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's that language again about entering into the kingdom of heaven. But he which doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So this nominal Christianity where you can just sort of easy believism, easy prayerism, but it doesn't change your life at all, where it's just an empty profession. He says, that's not, gonna, that's, not, that's not the real thing. That's not going to save you. There's all these counterfeits that are running around in our world. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the alternative to all of them. It refutes all of them and gives to us, here's real Christianity, and you better have real Christianity if you're going to go to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that is all a lengthy introduction. We will now get into six points. We'll be out of here by 2.30 this afternoon, so no, no need to worry about or watching the clock. So what are the hallmarks of the real Christianity that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, number one, real Christianity believes God's message. And by God's message, I mean the gospel. We deliberately had Brandon read John 3. 
Because it also uses language about entering the kingdom. And what is it that Jesus said to Nicodemus? Unless a man is born again, you will not enter into the kingdom. So did you catch this? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have to have a righteousness, you have to do the will of the Father in order to enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. And John says you've got to be born again. Like, well, are, are we teaching two different gospels here? Is Jesus saying in, in Matthew that you're saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mountain? And John, he's saying, no, you're saved by the new birth, which is, and the answer is yes. You put these two together, here's what you realize. It is only if you are born again that you can live the Sermon on the Mount. And if you are born again, you will progressively live the Sermon on the Mount. So if you claim to say, I've been born again, but nothing in the Sermon on the Mount is becoming apparent in my life, there's a pretty good chance you may not have been born again. When you are born again, the Spirit of God comes into your life. He quickens you. He gives you a new nature. The, 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 the very Spirit of the infinite triune God comes and takes up residence in the control center of your life. And he begins to change your affections, and he begins to change your character, and he begins to alter what you love. And your entire orientation, your entire worldview, all of your values are completely turned on their head. And the rest of your, your Christian life, you are living those things out progressively. No, it's one step at a time, like climbing a mountain. You don't make it to the top of the mountain on the first. Growing slowly. The Sermon on the Mount assumes the gospel and requires that we have believed the gospel. That's why I said at the outset, he's addressing the disciples. Let me say something very, very clear, clearly. The Sermon on the Mount is not giving you a roadmap to earn salvation. Some people have said, well, if you could just keep the Sermon on the Mount, you would be right with God. The, the problem is you can't. You and I are incapable in and of ourselves of keeping the, having a righteousness that exceeds it of the scribes and Pharisees. We are incapable of doing the will of the Father when our hearts are enslaved to sin. So this is a divinely required standard. Jesus makes it emphatically clear, this is required. This is not just a suggestion. This is not just an ideal. This is not just lofty rhetoric that is meant to make everyone say, wow, that was impressive. This is a divinely required standard, but here's the dilemma. It is a humanly impossible standard. Jesus is saying, here's the standard if we honestly evaluate our lives, we realize, I fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is calling for a way of life in which not just behavior, but motivation is pleasing to God. Look, for example, what he says in Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, that's what the Ten Commandments said. And by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had reduced that to say, as long as you don't actually go all the way through and commit the acts, you're okay. Kind of a Bill Clinton kind of reasoning. But I say unto you, Jesus is not saying, okay, that's wrong, but he's saying, here's what was really meant by that, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Lust is what fuels adultery, all right? You don't commit adultery without there being lust, without there being the desire before. And Jesus is saying, it's not enough just to avoid the explicit act. We need to avoid even the desire for sin. Now, he's not saying that lust and, and adultery are exactly the same. If you, if you think that, you would say, well, if I lust, I might as well go ahead and do. He's not reasoning that way. But he is saying, 
even the desire for sin is sin. Even the times when you're like, man, I really, really want to sin and I desire it, but I'm not going to because it would be embarrassing. You've sinned in your heart. Point being, this standard is so high, none of us can keep that. If you apply that, that principle across the board, it's not enough just to avoid stealing. You've got to even avoid coveting. It's not enough to, to just say, well, I, I, you know, I'm going to be respectful externally to my authorities, but in my heart, I'm going to resent them. God is looking at the heart. This is a divinely required but humanly impossible standard. It is not a keepable standard. But here's the good news. This is a divinely realized standard. We must not lose sight of the context of the entire book of Matthew. Okay, Matthew's presenting Jesus as the king. The way they understood kings in Jesus' day is that a, a good and perfect king would be the philosopher king, the king who would come and not only rule but also teach. Here he is standing as this great rabbi, standing as a new Moses on a new Mount Sinai, giving and explaining the law of God. But don't forget about the other mountain that comes up in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm talking about Mount Calvary. Because the sage on the hillside is also the Savior on the cross. And these two are intricately linked. The standard that he sets out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that none of us have kept and none of us can keep in and of ourselves, Jesus himself did keep. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, for Matthew 5, 17 to 20. I've come to fulfill them. And fulfill them he did by keeping the law and the prophets perfectly. And what's more, the great sage on the hillside, who is the Savior on the cross, bears the penalty of your law-breaking and my law-breaking in himself. In a sense, the cross doesn't make sense without the Sermon on the Mount, without this declaration of God's holiness. He died because our hearts are bent towards anger, towards lust, towards deception, and towards greed. He died on the cross because our hearts do indeed long for man's praise to be seen of men more than we long for the smile of our Father. He died on the cross because we do indeed greedily crave stuff and cravenly serve mammon rather than God. He died on the cross because we value possessions more than purity. He died on the, cro the cross precisely because we heartlessly judge others, judge not that ye be not judged, because we heartlessly demand of others what we don't demand of ourselves. Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. He went to the cross because of our failure to keep the Sermon on the Mount. But here, here's where I want us, to, what, what, want us to understand. I remember I said there's sort of two audiences. There's the multitudes, if you will, the lost. We're hearing this and should be hearing the Sermon on the Mount being like, this leaves me in the dust. God's holy and I'm not. We dare not stop there. It's not enough to see the Sermon on the Mount as merely demonstrating my need for a Savior. Okay? Yes, it is showing me that I need a Savior. But it is also showing me the way that God expects me to live once I've been redeemed. Sermon on the Mount is doing both. True, it is a diagnostic tool, not a cure. We cannot be saved by keeping it any more than you could be cured by an x-ray machine. But it would be a mistake to regard this as nothing more than an elaborate diagnostic tool that Jesus doesn't actually expect us to live. The end of the Sermon on the Mount makes it very clear. If you don't live this, your house will be wrecked. You will face God's judgment. If you do, you'll be spared on the day of judgment. This is the mark of those who have been saved. So how do I know that I have entered into the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, by the way, is not just sort of shorthand for heaven. The kingdom of God is talking about the rule of God, the rule of his re redemption. 
How do I know that I've entered into a saving relationship with Jesus, that I am in his kingdom, that I am a citizenship, citizen of his kingdom? As you will see these values, by the power of the Spirit who dwells within us being lived out. So both being born again and having a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees are required for entering the kingdom of heaven. We're not saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mount, but we are saved in order that we could and would keep the Sermon on the Mount. Are you all tracking with me? Kind of laying the theological foundation here. Let me give us a second attribute of real Christianity. Real Christianity values God's blessing. So Matthew 5 begins the famous Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the kind of people who possess the kingdom. Here's the kind of people who are saved. Notice verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who have the righteousness of God and live in a righteous way and are persecuted for it, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've got the nine Beatitudes, blessed, blessed, blessed. And Jesus doesn't just mean in a kind of thankful and blessed hashtag kind of way. He doesn't simply mean happy. I think that's kind of a shallow translation. The idea here is like you are, are, are complete and satisfied and full, and this is the good life. This is the good life that the philosophers were like, what is it? How do we define it? This is the, the peace, the shalom that the Old Testament was looking for. This is what people in our world are actually longing for without realizing it, is to live under the blessing of God, to live this full and complete life. But it's not found in having stuff. It's found in being poor in spirit. It's not found in being top dog, but in mourning over sin and being meek. It's not found in having all of your, your needs met, but hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's not found in doing whatever you want, but being pure in heart. All of these things are about character. Notice he doesn't say, blessed are those who do this and do this and do this and do this. It says, blessed are those who are this. We'll be careful that we don't read the Sermon on the Mount as giving us a list of behaviors. Well, it says, don't swear oaths, so I'm not going to swear any oaths. That, that's not the point. The point is not, you know, here's all of these rules, make sure you literally and carefully follow them. Rather, this is an illustration of the kind of character and righteousness that belongs to those who are going to enter heaven. Real Christianity values God's blessing. It pursues Christ-like character over against cultural Christianity that's just about a few external markers. Something I'll just note as well, each one of these Beatitudes has a future orientation. Notice verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's comfort that I don't yet have, but I will have one day. You know what it takes to, to, to act on that? It takes faith. So as we see throughout Scripture, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Keep before you throughout this study that the Sermon on the Mount is assuming the presence of saving faith. It is assuming the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So real Christianity values God's blessing, and therefore it pursues Christ's like character. What God is after in your life, beloved, is not that you would find eight things, okay, I'm going to do these, it's 2024, I'm making my New Year's resolutions, I'm going to make sure I pray five minutes a day and read two verses of Scripture and God will be happy. God is after character. What is character? Character is the kind of person that you are. What's supposed to be the kinds of people who forgive? Right? In the Lord's Prayer, that you forgive us our debts as we forgive 
our debtors, that you would be the kind of person who is concerned not just with the outside, but also with the inside. The kind of person who doesn't pray to be seen of men, but prays to love the Father in heaven. The kind of person who, rather than heartlessly holding people to standards you yourself don't follow, says that God is the judge and not me. It's about character. When we have Christ-like character, you will be radically different than the world. That's why he says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth, verse 13, 14, 15, 16. When, when the Beatitudes of true, are true in your life, you will be salt and light. Now, a lot of times these get lifted out of context and are like, we need to be salt and light, and now we're going to go out cultural engagement and political activism. I think more the point is go back to the Beatitudes and let the Beatitudes be true in your life and live them out loud, live them publicly, and you will be salt and light in this world in a radically countercultural kind of way. Okay, a third attribute of real Christianity. It not only believes God's message, it believes the gospel. It believes, I can't do this on my own. I can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It not only values God's blessing and pursues Christ-like character, but number three, real Christianity keeps God's law. Look at verse 17. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. So Jesus is not coming along to unhitch us from the Old Testament. He's not coming along to say, cut out Genesis through Malachi and just sort of throw it into the trash can. Saying, no, I've not come to destroy those or to set those aside. No, what does he say, verse 17? I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So to bring them to their desired end, to what God intended all along in the law and in the prophets. He's going to fulfill them by sometimes actually fulfilling some of the predictions of the prophets. He's going to fulfill by fulfilling the, the pictures that are in the law, like the sacrifices. He's going to fulfill by keeping the law perfectly. He's going to fulfill by actually giving us hearts that can keep not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. That's the promise of the new covenant. The new covenant is, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to put my spirit within them. That's the big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. God's standards haven't changed. It's not like, well, under Moses, here was the standard. But now it's different now and things that were okay. No, God's standard stays the same of, of holiness and, and righteousness. Under the new covenant... God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we are able to keep his law. Now, as we read in verse 20, what he is talking about is a real keeping of the law. Man, the Pharisees, they were all about the law. They would take, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and they would say, okay, so we need to figure out when does the Sabbath really begin? So we can make sure we keep this properly. And they would, well, does the Sabbath begin at sunrise or sunset? And they came up with all these arcane ideas that, it, you know, Friday night before the Sabbath, once you could hold your hand up and cover up so many stars, now the Sabbath has begun. And then they're like, well, now what constitutes work on the Sabbath? You know, if you walk to the synagogue, is that work? What if I walk further than that? What if I, you know, they get after Jesus because he picks corn on the Sabbath day. They, they get all off in the rules and regulations. They miss the whole point. Jesus is saying that's not real righteousness. That's legalism. What is required is heart-level righteousness. So if you, if you want kind of a, a breakdown of how the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, from verse 21 to verse 48, Jesus gives six illustrations of the principle. This is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment of the you know, all Christian ethics right here. He's saying, okay, here's, here's the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Main heading, you need to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Here's six concrete illustrations so you can get the drift of what I'm talking about, not meant to be exhaustive. And so he'll talk about 
Okay, thou shalt not murder. Well, that also requires that you not be angry and that you actually go and resolve conflicts in your life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That also requires that you go to war against lust and that you preserve the integrity of your marriage. He goes on to say, uh, he talks about uh, divorce. Pharisees were like, yeah, you can divorce for any old reason. He says, no, only for fornication. He talks about oaths. The Pharisees, instead of saying, just be honest, they were like, well, if you swear this oath, it's binding, but if you swear that oath, it's not. He says, no, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He talks about retaliation. They would say, well, it's okay to you know, retaliate against your enemies. He says, no, you need to love your enemies. Gives these illustrations of what this greater righteousness looks like. Legalism is always a danger in the Christian life. It's always a danger in our walk with Jesus to, to fall back under the... It's sort of our fallen default setting. It's to think through efforts I can make myself sort of pleasing and worthy of, of God's favor. The gospel turns that on its head. Real righteousness is not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about having certain cultural markers that mark out the good and from the bad. It is about a transformed heart. And let me tell you, you cannot transform your own heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. That is why the new birth is essential. Here's a fourth characteristic. Real Christianity enjoys God's presence. Enjoys God's presence. Not only keeps God's law, but it actually enjoys God. 17 different times in the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to God this way, as your Father, which is in heaven. Not just as the, the lawgiver, not just as the judge, not just as the creator, but the disciple of Jesus Christ has a unique relationship with God where he is Father. We're talking about relationship. So let me just give you an example here. Look at Matthew 6, verse 5. And when thou prayest. So he's now talking about piety and the, you know, the, the religious practices, praying, fasting, giving. We might add today going to church, you know, doing certain sort of religious type activities. The Pharisees reduced this to performance. It says, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. Okay, the word hypocrite is a play actor, someone who's just acting a part. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, here's the key, that they may be seen of men. So they're concerned about the horizontal human audience. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, okay, you're going to be different. You're not going to be like the hypocrites. You're not like the world. You're different. You're separate. You're holy. Enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to whom? To thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which, is, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Because the real disciple is doesn't pray and fast and give so you can look like someone who is a prayer warrior. Okay, here's the temptation. In anything we do for God, we can think, yeah, man, I want to do this thing for God, and I also want to be noticed doing it, right? I want to do my devotions, but I want to make sure I Instagram them so people can see that I'm the kind of person who does my devotions. I'm going to go to church, and I'm also going to make a big show of it so people notice that I'm here, and if the, the pastor doesn't say, thanks for being here, I'm going to get my feelings hurt and not come back. Okay, who are you here for? Uh, I, I, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to make sure that people are impressed when they hear me pray. Uh, I'm going to fast, and I'm also going to you know, use some kind of a hashtag on social media, or the Pharisees walk around with all oh, these pained expressions, so everyone would be like, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting today. 
kind of going on the fishing expedition for, you ever do that where you go fishing for compliments? You throw the, 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 you know, the, the, the lion in and hope people will say something nice. Be like, man, I'm just such a, a horrible Christian. And you want people to say, no, 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 you're a great Christian. You come to church and you, you serve in all these ways. Uh, John Wesley one time, the great preacher from the 1700s, a woman met him on the way out of a church service, and she said, I am the worst sinner who ever walked the earth. Going on one of those fishing expeditions, and he looked at her and said, yes, you are. And she got offended. Um, it is so easy to live our righteousness, not because we enjoy and love God, but because we enjoy and love being seen. We've got to guard our hearts. We want Jesus to be center stage, but we also want to photobomb him. Right? We, we want to be, here's Jesus, but here I am off to the side. I hope everybody notices me. I'm promoting Jesus. A danger in our hearts. Real Christianity enjoys God's presence. It's not about ritualism. It's not about formalism. It is about a divine reward, not about human recognition. It's not about man's applause, that everyone, man, saw you praying and giving. So don't, don't put your money in the, you come to the offering plate and you drop the coins from way up high so everybody can hear them clinking and clanging into the offering plate. But rather, you do it quietly. You give anonymously. You pray secretly. You fast. You don't let anyone know about it. Because it's about a relationship. It is not about a ritual. When you become a Christian, you're born again, not only do you get a new nature, not only are you justified and declared right with God, you are also adopted into his family. And this is one of the things that is radically different about Christian, real Christianity's righteousness. This is about living in God's family. It's not about, okay, do these things and keep these sacraments. It's about relationship. Real Christianity rejects empty ritual because it's about living in God's presence moment by moment. It is living before the face of God. It's not mechanical. It's not just, okay, I'm going to say these things, and if I pray just enough, maybe I can twist God's arm. But it's about relationship. Um, I think it's a little too cliche to say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Um, because in a sense, it is a religion because there's things that we believe, and you look up a definition of religion. But I get the sentiment. Christianity is more than just religion, and it is definitely much, much more than ritual. And real Christianity enjoys God's presence. It enjoys that relationship in, in praying. Not just praying while I have to do it, but praying because he's my father and I want to do it. A fifth characteristic, real Christianity prizes, values, esteems God's rule or God's kingdom. When you see, by the way, God's kingdom, sometimes we think kingdom like in a fairy tale. It's a land far, far away with borders and a castle. Kingdom is the idea of the rule, the authority of God. Real Christianity prizes God's rule. So beginning in verse 19, Jesus switches gears from talking about praying and fasting and giving money, those things we think about, those explicitly religious parts of our lives, the, the sacred parts of our lives, and now he talks about what we might call the secular parts of our lives. Just money and anxiety and food and clothing. And guess what? Those are to be brought under the rule of God. In fact, I would say this, dividing our lives into sacred and secular makes no sense. Jesus is to be preeminent in all things. He cares just as much about how you use your budget as he does your prayer life. 
right? If you are at work and you are embezzling money and you have an awesome prayer life, it's fake. Our lives are, are, are unified holes. They don't get to be put into boxes. So this, this devastates the materialistic Christianity that says, you know what, I can sort of live like the world and pursue all the things that the world pursues and still be good with God. And it also destroys the pietistic Christianity that's just like, you know what, I'm just going to go sit here back at home and just read my Bible and pray, and I'm never going to go to work, and I'm never going to have friends, I'm never going to you know, go bowling or, or do the, live in the world, I'm going to live this secluded, isolated life. Jesus is to be Lord over all of it. God's kingdom rules over all of it. So the division in our lives is not between sacred and secular. You see, sacred is going to church, secular is going to work, but rather between holy and unholy. You can pray in a way that is unholy. You're doing it to be seen of men. And you can go to work and turn the same bolt all day long and do it to the glory of God. And it'd be an act of worship. So notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33. He's been talking about food and clothing, talking about sustenance. He's been talking about the material things of life that you need to survive. And he is not saying, oh, you don't need, you don't need these at all. But he says, instead of running after all of these things, look at verse 32. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. Now, he's not just talking about Gentiles as non-Jew. He's talking about those who do not know God. Your lost neighbor who is on his way to hell, that is what he is consumed with. Just stuff and money and excitement and, and events. So that's what they're seeking. That's what their ambition is. But ye, seek ye first. You, this is what, how you live. You seek, the king, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, notice he doesn't say seek only the kingdom. He's not saying go live in a monastery somewhere and just think about heaven. Seek that first and all these things will be added unto you. This is about priorities. This is about prizing God's rule, God's authority over everything else. So our lives are not to be dominated by materialism. Yes, we need material things to live life. Materialism is the worldview that says that's all that really matters. Yes, you need money and insurance and cars and jobs to live, to survive, and there is nothing wrong with taking care of those things and working time to make sure those things are provided for. But there is something wrong when that becomes what is most important in my life. We need to have an eternal focus. Ten million years from now, it won't matter whether you drove a BMW or a beat-up Toyota. What will matter is that you sought his righteousness and his kingdom. But this Real Christianity that prizes God's rule also extends to our relationships, and that's what Matthew 7 describes. Matthew 7 describes these, these relationships. He says, Don't, it's not a relationship of judgment and criticism. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Esteeming God's rule, he's saying, you're not the ultimate judge. God is. God is. Now notice verse 12. Instead of criticizing people, instead of holding people to a standard you don't follow, turn that completely on its head. Look at verse 12 of Matthew 7. All things whatsoever you would, you would desire that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. You see how that's an inversion? Beginning verse 1, you're judging people. Here's a standard, but I don't want to be held to that standard. In verse 12, he's saying, here's what I would love for people to do for me. That's the standard of what I'm going to do for others. So what's real Christianity? Real Christianity believes the gospel, it believes God's message, one. Number two, it values God's blessing. Three, it keeps God's law. 
Four, it enjoys God's presence. Five, it prizes God's rule. And finally, sixth characteristic of real Christianity is, Christianity is it does God's will. Verse 13 to 27. Now Jesus gets to the end of his message. This is sort of the conclusion of the message. So you could think of Jesus as the Beatitudes. That's sort of the introduction. And then the stuff about the law, that's point one. And then the stuff about praying and fasting and giving, that's point two. And the stuff about money, that's point three. And now we come to the conclusion. Where he's going to reiterate what he said kind of at the beginning. It says, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight, the idea is, is, is difficult is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. He's saying there's two choices here. There's two roads. There's the broad road that everybody is born on that you don't have to do anything to be on that. It's easy. It just, you're just kind of going along with the flow. And he says that's going to end in destruction. He's talking about eternal judgment. He's talking about you, you stay on that path, you will die and spend eternity in hell. He says, or you can take the off-ramp, exit through this narrow gate, this difficult way. Living the Sermon on the Mount, that's not an easy way to live. So you enter that gate by faith alone in Christ alone, and it puts you on the road of discipleship. We'd be making a mistake to reduce all of Christianity just entering the narrow gate. Sometimes people are like, well, just believe in Jesus, and that's it, and there's nothing more. You believe in Jesus, you become his follower, right? And you're called to live this way, and the end of that road is life. So he says, okay, there's two roads. Which one are you on? Are you on the one that leads to life or the one that leads to death? Then in verse 15, he talks about two kinds of teachers. He says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And then he compares them to two trees, bring two different kinds of fruits. So there's this contrast. There's two roads with two destinies. There's two trees with two different kinds of fruit. There's two outcomes. Some will say, Lord, Lord, in verse 21. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, verse 23. And then finally, in verse 24, there are two houses, two foundations you can build on with two different outcomes. He's really laying out the choice, like a good preacher saying, all right, here's your, here's your choice. You want to enter the kingdom? You want eternal life? You've got to enter in at the narrow gate. You've got to become the kind of tree that produces good fruit. You've got to be the kind of person who has this foundation and builds on it. To boil it down to sort of one characteristic is verse 21. It's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's not just the guy who hears the words of Jesus, but the one who hears them and does them. And again, to reiterate what I said at the outset, he is not saying If you keep God's will, then you will earn salvation. But he is saying those who are saved will be marked, yes, imperfectly, times that are up and down, sometimes where we're more faithful than others, but marked by doing God's will and living what this says. This is real Christianity is marked by doing God's will. It's a lofty standard, Real, real Christianity. It is so easy to veer off into one of those, those counterfeits. 
cultural Christianity go with the flow of what is sort of like, what is the least common denominator of what I can do and still be regarded as a Christian by my friends and family? Uh, for a lot of people, it's, well, you go to church, you know, once or twice a quarter, and you tell people that's your church home, and you identify as a Christian. It's easy to get into the, the legalism of, look at these things I don't do. I don't, I don't watch TV, or you know, I, I don't have a Twitter account. I must be a good, that's not the point. Easy to get into the formalism. Well, I do go to church every single Sunday, and I, I sing all the hymns. No, real Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a blueprint for an ideal society. It's not like, man, if policymakers could get a hold of this, and this could be our foreign policy. No, this is not a blueprint for society. It is not a roadmap for earning salvation. It is not a rule book for having your best life now. It is not a law code for a future era. Some people say, well, this is just for the millennial kingdom. No, 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 no. It's not a law code for a future era, nor is it a relic from a past era. This is not just Jesus speaking to them then and there. This is a manifesto here and now for real Christianity, for the real thing, not the counterfeit thing. The question we have to ask ourselves, we just surveyed the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, I encourage you, homework this week, read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount this week. Read it out loud. No chapter breaks, just from beginning to end, take 15 minutes. I'm just going to read it out loud slowly and carefully and say, does this describe me in any way? The Christian life is the lifelong pursuit of becoming who you are. The moment you believed in Jesus, God declared you righteous. You are righteous in his sight. The rest of the Christian life is growing in that righteousness. The moment you became a Christian, you became a saint. The rest of the Christian life is learning to live in a saintly kind of way. You read the Sermon on the Mount. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, this is who you are, and therefore this is how you should live. Does your life evidence this? Let me ask the question differently. Are you born again? Have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life that you understood that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but of everlasting life. Has there been a time when God has radically changed your heart? Are you realizing and seeing the standard of the Sermon on the Mount lived out in your life? The journey up this mountain is going to be arduous at times. You better have a good pair of hiking boots. They better be tied on tightly. You might get blisters along the way. You might get altitude sickness as you climb the mountain. There's going to be ups and downs. There might be points where you find yourself retching on the side of the trail. But the genuine disciple is the one who gets up and keeps on going. And one day we will get to heaven. And we will enter heaven's glory not, not because we were righteous by our works, but because Jesus was righteous for us. Because the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in our hearts and set us on this path, put us on the narrow way that leads to life.